My name is Keith Beavers, and I've been told recently that I say awesome too much, which is awesome because if you know, it's just really the awesomeness of the word awesome is just has such awesomeness to it. It's just awesome. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to Vine Pair's Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair, Vine Pair Keith on Insta. And how you doing? It's time to take a magnifying glass and go deep, deep, deep into Napa. We're actually going to go deep, deep, deep into a wine cellar and talk to a winemaker. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be full circle, Sonoma, Napa, getting to understand it, knowing it, embracing it. Let's do this. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Louis M. Martini Winery, where an 85-year legacy of making Cabernet Sauvignon is still going strong. Everything Cabernet Sauvignon is celebrated at Martini, the history, the winemaking, the wine. Visit the Martini tasting room and sip a cab inside, outside in a cabana, or underground in a cellar. Or try a full culinary exploration from the in-house chef. I'll be there. The people at Louis M. Martini Winery are serious about cab. Taste it and you'll know why cab is king. Okay, wine lovers, here we are at the fourth installment of our Sonoma Napa Deep Dive series. And just like in the second episode of the Sonoma series, we are here going to have an interview. And just like the interview of the Brene Royal, this is also an epic, information-heavy, awesome interview. Adam and I went to Lewis and Martini Winery just off of Route 29, which we talked about in the last episode. And we went down to the wine cellar and we talked to Michael Eddy. He is the current head winemaker at Lewis and Martini. And what's cool about this interview is just like with the Brene interview and the Sonoma episode, we saw this kind of future of Napa happening in real time. And the great thing about Michael Eddy is he's the first winemaker at Lewis M. Martini that is not a family member. So this is awesome. The first half of this interview is mostly just talking about the history of the family, how they got here into Napa, and and how they became part of the fabric of the winemaking industry in Napa. And then we get into Michael himself, how he became the winemaker here, what his what his story is, and what he's trying to do in the future. And there's some really exciting stuff. And what's great about this story is the connection between the Monte Rosso vineyard that Brene makes awesome and the Lewis and Martini family. You guys got to hear this. So without further ado, enjoy Adam and I hanging out with Michael Eddy. Knowing that Martini is an, a very important part of the fabric of Napa and everything came coming in in 1930s and, and doing all that. So I guess I just wanted you to riff if you could. <laughs> you want me to tell the story? Yeah, just tell the story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you could guess, I've told this story a few times, um, <laughs> which uh, luckily I still really enjoy telling it. So I don't think it's gotten stale because for me, it is one of those classic American dream stories. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think most of us will agree that we still have a lot of work to do to make the American dream more accessible to more people. Mm -hmm. But as a conceptual thing towards which we aspire, I, I think this story is a great example because... Hi guys, real quick. So the audio is going to change a little bit. It had a bit of a 
microphone issue, but I wanted to keep that piece in because I think that's very important to the story going forward. Okay, let's do this. It's going to sound better, I promise. Yeah, so Louis M. Martini, our founder, uh, grew up in uh, near Genoa, Italy, and his dad was a fisherman. And at some point, his dad came over to the States and uh, settled in the San Francisco Bay area, mm-hmm. where he was, you know, uh, building his fish business. And at some point, decided he needed a hand and called for his young son, Louis M., to, to come join him. And at, we think, around the age of 13, Louis M. traveled via boat across the Atlantic, came through Ellis Island by himself at 13. 13. Yeah, it's Jeez. crazy. So think about that. Right, nice. if you let a kid do that today, you'd get arrested. Yeah, um, exactly. Travels via rail all the way across the country and joins his dad and, and helped him out with fishing. And they, they were a part of a, you know, there was an Italian-American community there in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they were still very traditional, did a lot of bartering, and so they would trade you know, refrigeration wasn't what it is today. And, mm. and so you'd have leftover fish and you'd trade that. And they also made a stew that you guys may know, cioppino, which is actually not an Italian dish. It's, it was uh, created in San Francisco, but it's Italian inspired. American. So it's, yeah, exactly. It's mixed fish stew, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would trade that and, you know, for bread, meat, whatever. And at some point they were able to trade for some wine grapes. And of course, wine was a part of both of their culture back home. Right. And so. But they weren't even thinking really about that. They were thinking about fish. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that's where the, to me, one of the kernels of the American dream is having a personal vision and passion, right? For where you want to take your life. Right. And so Louis M made some wine out of those grapes. Uh, And of course, we don't know exactly what it tasted like, but if my first homemade wine is anything to suggest, it probably wasn't great. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was enough to light that spark within him uh, mm-hmm. and for him to decide maybe he didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps. And so eventually he goes back to Italy to get a little more technical training um, and comes back to California and makes wine throughout various parts of California. And eventually in 1933, he lands in St. Helena, almost smack dab in the middle of Napa Valley, and wow. builds this winery we are sitting in, in wow. the underground cellar of right now. Um, and of course, these were the early days of Napa Valley, right? Napa Valley was not the world famous, iconic place to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. Right, just a bunch um, of couple of dudes out there just with vineyards and houses and trying to make it happen yeah and, and a lot of mixed ag still right back at that time oh interesting right right sure yeah you still had orchards you had some row crops mm-hmm. um more on the valley floor you know and sure and grapes were more on the bench lands and uh but even just five years later uh louis m bought the monteroso vineyard which i know you guys are aware that of. thing is spectacular it's, it's a pretty special place just sitting there you're just it's it's almost hard to wrap your mind around how beautiful it is how how like the position the place and the, the place in the earth that it is and the many different varieties that thrive there instead of just one yes it's it's a very american story that one vineyard in itself is an american story a wine story and it's amazing yeah i try to it's hard to impress upon people who haven't been there i'm glad you you guys have been able to get up there that like even if you took the vines away it's just a special place yeah it's majestic it's yeah. cool you know, like some people have their special places, the mountains or the ocean, whatever. 
but that is one of those places where you just feel a different vibe, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's it, amazing, almost surreal or spiritual in a way. And then of course, amazingly old vines and, oh my um, gosh. and that vineyard puts quite a distinct fingerprint on all the wines that are grown on that site. It mm-hmm. really has its own very unique personality. So yeah, it's one of those places where everything comes together. That's amazing. Yeah. And Brene's killing it. Yeah. She does, she does a fantastic <laughs> job up there. Yeah. But you know, he bought that in 38 because, again, it, it happens to sit on the other side of the county line. So sure. it's in Sonoma County. But really, it's not very far from the Mount Veter AVA. Uh, yeah. and What's a political line anyway, man? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. In the 30s, they didn't care, right? <laughs> right, right. Of course. He was just looking for killer sites that made good wine. Right. And he was able to to purchase fruit off of Monterosso a couple years before he bought it. So mm-hmm. he knew the potential there. Um and from what I can gather, I mean, Louis M's the one that I know the least about of the Martini gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what I've gathered, he was kind of a scrappy, opportunistic, you know, very entrepreneurial, spirited, very gregarious kind of guy. And um, I, I just real quick, when I'm reading the history of this place, it's what's really funny is it makes complete sense because he came in the 30s. There were people already here doing it. So he had to come into a place that was already things were already happening and he had to be scrappy and shit like that. Just like, yeah, you know, he needed to, that's great that he was, he's like, okay, let's do this. I'm here. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause he, he was an outsider just came right. and planted himself. That's awesome. Uh, but you know, had quite the success. You and I were talking earlier. He helped found the Napa Valley Vintners Association. Right. Um, so really a very influential person in starting to build that kind of nascent wine industry that mm-hmm. was here. Mm-hmm. Eventually, though, he passed it on to his son, Louis P. Martini. And Louis P. was a very, very different uh, guy. Uh, Very large, tall, large man, but very soft personality. Mm -hmm. Kind of one of those gentle giant kind of guys. But he was very, very technically wise. So he was... I would say of the three Martini gentlemen, the most scientist. I'm using air quotes. Sure. (laughs) Um, He he was a real innovator. He, He brought the first uh, temperature-controlled uh, fermentation vessels. Oh, really? Napa Valley. Yeah. That's an innovation. That's interesting. Yeah. Agaston Harazath, he's like, good job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, also, the so from his time in the war and seeing propellers on planes, he helped develop the first wind machines for frost prevention <laughs> that you still see. You know, it's not, they're not used at every site, but you still see those. There uh, it is again, the wine industry taking something from another industry to, yep. <clears throat> you know, a lot of that we talked about in the, at the, at the Fry <clears throat> winery with the quarry technology being used for distribution of varieties and stuff mm-hmm. into tanks and stuff. So sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. This is amazing. No, no, you're right. Like the belts. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Amazing. That's really what innovation is. Innovation isn't always coming up with something completely new. Sometimes right. it's taking old things and applying them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Louis P was was really technically quite sharp, um, but carried on some of the family inclinations, if you will, because we've always been kind of a fairly red focused house. Mm-hmm. And I think starting with Monteroso had this kind of connection to mountain sites. And so Louis P made California Mountain Barbera and California Mountain wow. Cabernet Sauvignon That's for awesome. a number of years. Mountain Barbera. I yeah. yeah. Uh, but of course, he eventually uh, passed it on to his son, Michael Martini, who I worked with for a decade. Okay. And Michael was yet again a different sort of, you know, put his own fingerprint on the winery. And 
Mike, I liked. He went to UC Davis, which is where I got my master's degree as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, he studied, but he was more of an artisanal. Like his his angle, his vibe was more artisanal, and he actually brought more traditional French technique. So interesting. Before Mike brought in small barrels, barriques, you know, mm-hmm. the small barrels that mm-hmm. we use today. Uh, all the family's wine had been made in casks and tanks. So Mike brought in some more of these traditional techniques. He uh, started uh, extracting the wines more thoroughly. So if you look at how his dad, Louis P, made wines, they're very short macerations. So oh, keeping the wines fresh and vibrant. Mm-hmm. Now, I think some of that might have been due to fruit handling, right? Before fruit handling equipment got really sophisticated, right. you couldn't extract very thoroughly or you'd get really aggressive bitter wines right that makes sense so keeping it like almost like a claret was a little bit easier exactly and so then he you know with mike with newer tools was able to start exploring building bigger structured wines um and aging them a bit longer etc so uh yeah mike was kind of a he also plays in a band so i i wouldn't quite call him a hippie (laughs) but he's got you know just a hint of the kind of 60s 70s to him dig it yeah (laughs) yeah he's a fun guy that's cool when um I'm curious, like how the the story of of Cabernet Sauvignon is a very unique one, and I think that you know the Martini family, along with the Mondavis and the Bolo, everybody everybody was making things out of Barbera and, and things whatever they had here. But you could see throughout the history, slowly, steadily, and I guess say slowly but surely, the press and like like the people that were writing letters a lot to the to the cab kind of just worked its way into the hearts of winemakers and i'm just wondering where when when did martini make that transition was there even a transition or was it like how did that work it was pretty early i mean uh louis m after acquiring the monoroso vineyard planted cabernet up there i want to say in the 40s okay um some of the earlier cab uh but of, of course we know cab was around you know i mentioned that my first winery out of school was Beaulieu Vineyard, which is right. literally just down the road right. from where we're sitting, and founded in the 30s. Uh, and they had Cabernets in the 30s. So okay. it just wasn't necessarily the dominant variety, right? You still had a lot of... The Barberas, the Dolcettos, it, yep. the Mataros, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Probably Zinfandel. Zinfandel, of yep. course. So more Italian, mm-hmm. California varieties. Uh, so it took some time before Cabernet really became dominant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was around. It's been around for but, a while. I mean, just seeing the aging potential and how these wines are structured, I would imagine as the Martini generations moved into the future, it seems like science became more and more of a priority. And mm-hmm. eventually, one of the one of the Martinis made their way to UC Davis, and then comes back to the winery starts with with the knowledge and the skill they have to build wines realizing that cabernet sauvignon to build a wine to age in this place it just makes sense i can imagine like going you know what guys cab's the way to go this is like yeah. we with all the stuff that we have here the cab is the best for what we what we're doing no question. And I think his dad even saw that, right, with his California mountain cab. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think that's probably where Cabernet became more firmly seated as a point of focus mm-hmm. uh, was in Louis P's time. Um, but again, Louis M was planting it and right. making it. So it, right. it wasn't brand new. It was just that kind of evolution towards a focus point. Yeah, it's fine. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, it totally is. So we're here. We're here in the in the wine the 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 cellar 
Mm-hmm. And these we have these old vats around us. Is this the original? These are the original vats that were used for the. Uh, well, I don't know about original, but oh. they are very old. Yeah, yes. very old. I actually don't know the the exact age of these casks, but um, they've been around for a while. We don't uh, don't use them anymore, obviously. Right, right. right. Um, but yeah, this would have been part of the cellaring area down here. That's amazing. In the original day. That's yeah. so cool. I love what you're done with the place. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I, it wasn't me, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I stopped. I'm sorry. I, I interrupted your the the, the storyline, the, the the timeline here. So we're we're up to um, the Mike who you'd worked with. Yes. Yeah. So he and I worked together for ten years, and oh, cool. uh, he was quite a resource because obviously third generation in Napa Valley. He he really knew this place. He knew properties. He knew families. Mm-hmm. He knew history. Uh, so really was able to give me more of a, I guess, emotional, psychological connection because mm-hmm. I am the first winemaker without the last name Martini. Really? The first without, wow. Yeah. Man, um, that's, that's, some, that's some stuff right there. Yeah, and I, I like to think, you know, well, uh, it has two, it's a double-edged sword because uh, in some sense it's a bit of a burden, right, to mm-hmm. carry on a family legacy that's not your family. Right. But on the other side of it, I figure, well... If I don't have the last name Martini, I guess that means I earned it. Right? Absolutely, man. <laughs> so. And again, we're—I mean—I keep on bringing this. This is like a, this is also an American story. Here is like it's about we have generational, you know, moves, but also there is, like, like you, we, we, this person is good at what they do. They're going to be good for 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 our family, and and we need to let this person do the work that we if we don't. We don't know. We, we, we like to. We want to see where it goes with with this skill set of yeah. of human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just awesome. I love it. Yeah, I mean that's something I'm quite proud to be connected to. When I got out of school, I didn't. I would have never told you. Oh, I want to work at a place with a bunch of history. I didn't even think right. about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just at that point I was young winemaker and I wanted to work with great vineyards and make cool wines. That's uh, awesome. But. I started at BV and I quickly, you know, hearing stories of Andre Chelichev quickly mm-hmm. was like, Oh, this is actually kind of cool. Yeah. Like being connected to and part of a storyline yeah. is uh, meaningful. It may not inform the, what you do, but the spirit with which you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the inspiration that you can draw from that definitely creates a different vibe with how you're going about your work. So, That's awesome. um, that's so pretty cool. But really, I think the modern era of Martini, if you want to call it that, started before I even started working with the wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2002, the Martinis partnered with the Gallo family. Right. Oh, 2002, okay. Yeah, 2002. And uh, that really ushered in capital that the family didn't have. You know, right. Third generation, as happens, this is a tough business that we're in. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very cyclical, and, and the family uh, had gotten a little tight on cash flow and ha- struggling to reinvest and upkeep, and that's where the Gallo family, who actually, it's pretty cool that, you know, we when we get a bond to be a winery in California, you get assigned a bonded winery number. Mm-hmm. And the bonded winery number for the Martini family was the one right preceding the bonded winery number for the Gallo family. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they literally got their bond in sequence. That's crazy. Uh huh. Because they didn't. They, they both kind of get their start at the same time. Nineteen thirties. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right out yeah. of prohibition. Yeah, um, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's amazing. Well, the timing—it's just ridiculous. Well, you see these cool, you know, 
full circles in yeah. the stories. Um, I think at other places too, but we definitely have them at Martini and you know, partnering with the Gallo family was definitely one of those kind of full circles. Right, right. Uh, connecting two families who had some similar uh, times. It's very cool. And, very cool. But Gallo brought in a lot of capital, and Bob Gallo, one of the first things he did is go to Mike Martini and say, what do you need to make the best Napa Valley Cabernet possible? And that immediately led to the building of our microwinery, Cellar 254. Okay. Which is where we now make all of our small lot, like, wine club tasting room exclusive wines as well as some that are in limited distribution so it started as a, as a, te- a testing facility not really a testing i mean we certainly do trials in there but it really started as kind of winer- a winery oh, just a within micro. a winery okay yeah. i'm sorry the term micro winery is pretty cool and i didn't really understand i don't fully understand what it meant <laughs> well it just means smaller just a small scale. winery okay yeah. cool cool um Smaller lots, so okay, gives us the capability of bringing in portions of blocks, right? right? So we can really dial in ripeness. Uh, gives us a tremendous amount of control over fruit integrity, berry integrity. Very cool. Which improves our ability to extract and build the mm-hmm. structure of the wine with great precision. Uh, and that's where we make the lot one that we're going to be tasting today, mm-hmm. sitting in front of you. Uh, and in fact, lot one began in two thousand three. So. Bob oh. Gallo asked Mike, hey, what do you need to make the best Napa Valley Cabernet? They quickly build, you know, with Gallo Capital, the micro winery. And then in 2003, they launched the pinnacle wine that, that we still have today. Wow. And it was actually named in homage to Mike's dad. Louis P., for a period, was bottling special selection wines. And they would be, you know, lot three, lot seven, et cetera. Oh, cool. And so it's really in, in, named in homage to, to that approach. That's awesome. Hmm. That's cool. So, <clears throat> I have a question. You can edit my voice out, but um, never. <laughs> when we talk about sort of just Napa as a idea, as a place, right? You are a winemaker that went to Davis, sort of, you know, probably the premier winemaking university in the country. You could have gone anywhere to make wine. Why did you choose to come make wine in Napa? What is it about Napa? You know, it probably is less thrilling a connection than you would think. But I, I don't know. I don't know that I was dead set on Napa, but uh, I actually got my undergrad degree from Humboldt State University, which is north here. It's not the last county before Oregon, but it's the next to last. Mm-hmm. And worked in a restaurant while getting my undergrad degree, and you know, for four and a half years, I worked in this restaurant. And the owners were really cool, and they started exposing me to wine at the same time i was studying you know microbiology organic chemistry and all this stuff and i started home brewing beer because on a student salary beer was more accessible yeah. than, than wine at that time <laughs> i'm gonna make my own beer oh, winemakers yeah. love beer <laughs> it will and and i could also buy like five beers from different parts of the world different styles and bring them in on a slow night mm-hmm. and we'd all taste them together and that's where i kind of started to fall in love with the talking about a beverage you know understanding it uh connecting to people over it and uh but but when i started homebrewing that really connected kind of my more abstract academic interests in these sciences to something that was concrete because i had always from a very young age been interested in consumables you know food beverages and suddenly all that stuff came together uh but the owners of the the restaurant really exposed me to wine and I was like uh, this this stuff's pretty cool so started traveling 
down from there, down 101, you end up in Sonoma County. So that's really was my first experience in wine country. Uh, came over to Napa as well, but that was kind of the plan when I said, well, I'm going to go to Davis. I think I'll end up in Sonoma County because that's where I first came to wine country. Right. Uh, but of course, Napa is closer to UC Davis. For those who don't know, it is much closer to uh, UC Davis than Sonoma County. And so that's where my first internship was. I interned at uh, Trefethen Winery. Oh, cool. Right down the road here. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, they did such a great job with an internship because you literally did almost everything. I mean, you sanitize the bottling line, mm. you run analysis in the lab, run a filter, like just. Wow, everything. Sample vineyards. It was really oh, cool. very inclusive. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and so it was natural then to look within Napa Valley, and that's when I landed at BV. Okay. After mm-hmm. getting my degree, so. That's awesome. So, and so when did you start with Martini? I started in, o- well, in 05, I started with assisting on our Sonoma County cab, helping Mike with that wine, because that's our largest volume. Mm-hmm. It gets you know, a lot of attention paid on it, because frankly, that's, from a lot of drinkers' perspective, that's how they know us, because mm-hmm. that's what most people drink. Right, because they, they can get it. It's nationally distributed. Yeah, right. broadly available, easy to find, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was in 05. And then Mike officially retired in 15. You know, he had been starting to step away a little bit, although I will say he was always to the end during harvest, very engaged, very mm-hmm. present. Um, and so, yeah, he officially retired in 15. So we kind of worked together for that decade. So mm-hmm. I guess... You know, making wine for this family, and when you're brought on to do something like this, do they say things like, "Just go for it, man," <laughs> just like go? And then you, you, your philosophy of Cabernet Sauvignon, your philosophy of building a wine to age, is it on level of theirs? Does it parallel them? Do you, or do you bring? What are you, are you bringing? Something different or anything like that? To well, I mean, they say kind of just go, but also, hey, this is a really expensive fruit. So right. Like, don't, <laughs> don't check don't it out. Go, yeah. like, you know, don't just go, go but like go right. right. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like to think that the, the history, like I said earlier, I think, uh, inspires what I do. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to replicate any of the wines of the past. Right. Um, lot one was an opportunity for us to forge a distinctly new wine style. And... Uh, while it is named in homage, again, there, there's some inspiration there. It's, I think, a more modern style. Yeah. Um, refined and, and elegant, but a little more modern. Yeah, beautiful oak, beautiful oak good acidity, but, yeah. pow, but framed. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, there are things, uh, still ideas in the hopper. Barbera's not, from a market standpoint, a terribly popular variety, mm-hmm. but it's something, you know, I go to grand tastings you know for for critics or whatever mm-hmm. and i still have people come up to me and say oh man i remember the the barbera in the 60s man that wine was so amazing and so i think that emotional connection and there there could be something there it would be kind of right. fun to do maybe it's just wine club and tasting room but to do a barbera so <sighs> see there it is that uh, this yeah why you guys are crazy <laughs> I, I love it like there's like you know because that was gonna be the I, that was i was kind of going there like are you are there other varieties like the varieties of the past that this this family has worked with are, are you excited about and to have a barbera from napa like i don't even know i, I would love to try that <laughs> i don't even know i had an italian restaurant for 10 years so i've tried barbera has been sort of part of my diet <laughs> for a long time yeah 
and uh, just to, to have a Barbera from Napa would be really cool. Yeah, and, and there are some other concepts there too because uh, we were lucky enough, we had a wine club member who had a, I think it was like a 68 Barbera. Oh, wow. And he brought it in to taste with us. Oh, wow. Yeah, we were like, oh, that's so generous. Yeah. Um, and I remember tasting that wine and it was unbelievable. Wow. It was chewy, tannic. And I'm like, wait, that this doesn't taste like Barbera to me, right? Barbera is usually vibrant acidity, yeah. not a lot of tannin. And this thing was, even at that age, and we literally just tasted this uh, three, four years ago, three years okay. ago. And it was monstrous. Wow. I, I was so confused. I mean, I was impressed by the wine, mm -hmm. but, but very confused. And so I talked to Mike Martini sometime later, and he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, back then, the variety, variety labeling laws requirements were different. You only had to be greater than 50%. Uh, he said, that Barbera was usually 40-something percent petite right. And I was like, <laughs> there oh, it is. now I get it, right? <laughs> okay. So I think doing something like that, you know, there's a cool story to tell there. I think that's so great. Like, the, making sound wines in the tradition of how places like this came up. Yeah, would be so cool. Like, like we, when we first walked in here, um, we're looking at the the advertisement. You said, you know, the Chablis, the reason, the dry Sauterne. <laughs> I mean, and you looked up, you're like, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. cool. I mean, that's cool to do. I mean, I know, I know, we can't call it Chablis. <laughs> right. If you ever do a white, you know, you know, but but to 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 emulate the the styles of back in the day while using modern whatever modern technology when you say modern technology in wine it's always always a caveat modern technology while respecting the uh techniques of the past that still work and meshing with the technology and all that stuff you know i mean the way we make wine is still very much traditional i right. mean we have tools and you know but it's still a pretty traditional process yeah, it's just a fermentation some racking crush some grapes crush up. some grapes yep. <laughs> ferment them yep. that's awesome rack clarify awesome. It's pretty basic, but so is there anything about this wine that this wine's beautiful? Is there anything about this wine that's special to you that you're mm. like, like this is the favorite wine, my favorite wine I make, or anything like that? Do you have any favorites? I do have a favorite, a very distinct favorite, and I I will say I, I have a little trouble enjoying the wines that I work on uh, because I don't know if you guys have ever like you know worked on your own house or anything but mm -hmm. like you walk into the room and there's a tile in the corner i can't tell you how that just bothers me that's why i don't really read the stuff i write after it publishes or listen to my podcast <laughs> exactly you know yeah it's like cool it's out there it's Sweet. published it's like nobody else sees that tile but man you walk into the room and it's there's the first thing that came right tile God. i know I, I hate it i see it. i have a house and i we just bought a house and i haven't we haven't lived it in we haven't even lived in the house in a year and there are certain things i'm like god <laughs> there's that you know like it's just yeah. there yeah yeah i know exactly what you're talking about so the the wines are a little like that for me because i'm also what motivates and interests and excites me is how to do better the next vintage mm -hmm. you know where are we going that's what really drives me um but i will say year in and year out the gnarly vines infidel off of monoroso is i adore that wine all right um you know the spiciness the the dynamic on the palate because it is a, a fairly high alcohol wine so mm -hmm. you get this rush of kind of sweetness mm -hmm. alcohol sweetness and fruit sweetness mm -hmm. but then all the wines off Monterosso are very low ph and vibrant so it cleans that's out that's cool and it just it has this dynamic in the palate that i love gosh mm. i didn't try that i can't believe the camera we tried it we, we tried it yesterday yeah we had yeah i think you did try it yesterday. we had it yesterday in the vineyard 
You had the oh, cab the vi- and the Zin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. It's the one we had when we were at the Vines. I didn't know, not the, the, I didn't one, know the name of it. <laughs> yeah, not the one that we we had the cab at the top of the vineyard. And we had, when we were amongst the Vines, we had the Gnarly Vine. Oh, okay. I didn't know yeah. it was the Gnarly Vine. It was delicious. Yeah, and it made exclusively from vines planted before 1900. That's Those really like awesome. 129, 130-year-old vines. It's super so, cool. It's amazing. Yeah. So another question to you, like sort of as a winemaker, um, that I feel like we, I feel like is a, not a, I don't want to say it's a stereotype. I think it's an opinion that it's a feeling that most consumers probably have, which is like, you're a winemaker. You want to make your own label. You want to have your own winery. But I think there's a, a lack of understanding. There's a lot of the majority of winemakers actually working for other wineries. Um, what I mean, did you have that thought when you were leaving Davis? Like, I want my own thing, or I want to go work for someone. Like, what is that sort of push and pull? I think as a as a winemaker that people think about, and where do you think that that idea comes from? That like winemakers are only making their own labels. I don't know where it's the a loaded idea. question. Yeah, no, no, no. Because no. <laughs> I've been asked that many times. Oh, do you oh, want to do your own yeah. thing? And I'm like, hell no. Like, I, <laughs> I see the business side. Yeah, of this no business. Yeah. I, don't for do, me, I just want to make it. Like that's yeah. what's gratifying. To that's me. awesome. But there are plenty of winemakers who do. Like they want to they be want able their to name call on something. it. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, I think, to be fair, there's a sense of authorship and ownership mm-hmm. of having your own thing. Um, and and I'm more just into the process. Like what excites me is. And actually, this goes well beyond wine for me. I, I've I home roasted coffee for several years. I, I had goats and m- made my own cheese. To me, it's the connection of let's call it terroir, right? Mm-hmm. So the the kind of uh, intrinsic elements of where a thing is grown, mm-hmm. raised, whatever the climate, the the feed of the animal, whatever it is. And then the process, right? There's mm-hmm. what you do with it. And you can take the same milk from the same animals on the same feed and do different stuff to it and make very different cheese styles. Um, same thing with grapes off of the same vineyard block, right? You can do different stuff. And it's that understanding of kind of the intrinsic elements, the terroir, if you will, and then how you can modify that through technique. Um, and I love the connection to that stuff. Same thing with coffee, right? You, um, coffee even just the drying of the beans whether it's wet processed or dry Mm -hmm. processed can have a huge impact on how the coffee tastes but then there's also obviously roasting right that's a process and you Mm -hmm. can really shift the coffee style that way so uh that that's what excites me about winemaking i don't need to have my very own i've made wine at home a number of times right that's cool and honestly like you know you are you you don't want to do your own but this is you're the winemaker Right. You're so making, this is yours. This is yeah. this is your. You know. This is your. You're touching. This process is your thumbprint on the wines going forward, and those wines are going to sit in cellar, yeah, and people's cellars for however long, and then when they pop it, they're going to say you made that wine, and that's awesome. And you may not have your own, but you were able to do it. That's awesome. I also think there's a little bit of a. I think. And I, I work with, you know, younger winemakers. I don't mean young in age, but earlier in their career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's this impression that at some point you get to a place where you make all the decisions. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that that really ever happens because you always have business considerations. You have the market. What do people mm-hmm. actually want to buy and drink? It is a business. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that you ever just like, Again, unless it's a home winemaking project. Yeah, you can do whatever the hell you want. Right. But when I make a wine at home, 
I really miss the tools and things that I have at the winery. I'm like, oh man, this is, God, I wish I had temperature control and those kind of things. Right. Um, and frankly, as I've, you know, matured in my career, the things that excite me more are working with a team because I, I can't make this wine on my own. I, right. Not even yeah. close. Mm-hmm. And so it's how do you educate and collaborate with people, particularly, like I said, people on my, I have winemakers on my team and, you know, mentoring them, learning from them, because frankly, there's nobody who like knows everything about wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all have different experiences and perspectives, but uh, being able to teach them, but also learn from them and work together, mm. uh, you know, to be able to help chart the vision, but then work together to get there is what excites me in my career now. It's awesome. so cool. Yeah. It's this awesome. is an awesome conversation. Thank you for Good. taking yeah, the time to do this. Um, this is really incredible. So there you have it, wine lovers. That is the future of Napa. I don't want to have the Chablis as a Chablis. I want to have the Chablis as what it was, but we can't call it Chablis. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and listen to my American Wine History series, and I got all that stuff in there. But next week, we're going to start getting back into regions. We're going to dive into Washington. We're going to go to Oregon. We're going all the way to the East Coast of Virginia. So get ready. Wine 101 keeps going because of you guys. And I'll see you next week. Vine Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Louis M. Martini Winery, where an 85-year legacy of making Cabernet Sauvignon is still going strong. Everything Cabernet Sauvignon is celebrated at Martini, the history, the winemaking, the wine. Visit the Martini tasting room and sip a cab inside, outside in a cabana, or underground in a cellar. Or try a full culinary exploration from the in-house chef. I'll be there. The people at Louis M. Martini Winery are serious about cat. Visit thebarrelroom.com to get a taste of it today, where shipping is available. You'll know why cab is king.